Boom, there it goes. So this week we are in the book of Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Okay, let me read to you what we're going to talk about tonight. And this is another one of those nights where you start reading and you think you know what we're going to talk about and you end up going down this like path. Um, so let's look at this, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, so remember, they've just... Um, Jesus has been born. Mary and Joseph, remember we did the whole manger thing last time? Um, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay? Everybody remember that? Yeah. Eight days? Got it. Um, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. We may not get past that verse tonight, so we're going to stop there for the moment because there's a lot in there. Um, okay, so to make sure you understand the timeline, um, let's go to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Well, let me, before we get there, let me just back up to what we just read. At the end of eight days, Jesus was circumcised and given his name, right? Why did it take eight days to do that? Because that was law. Because God said so. Because God said so. And that's when the blood clotting happens, right? It has more to do with the fact that Mary could not have entered the temple prior to the seventh day. Um, because of her uncleanness related to having given birth. Oh. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's what our focus is going to be on. Okay. Um, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Where did they come from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Okay. All right. So Jesus is born. It's now eight days later. They take him to the temple. And the reason they take him to a temple, Luke tells us, and there, when you see something like this explained in the Bible, it means he knows he's writing to Gentiles. Jewish people knew exactly why they were in the temple. They knew exactly what law told them to go there. They knew because every woman that ever gave birth did the same thing. Only Gentiles would be confused about this, which includes us. So he says that at the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay. As it is written, the law of the Lord. Okay. That happens to be. In Exodus, um, let's say 13.9. Let's go there. Exodus 13.9. We'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. Exodus 13.9. What does that say? And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Keep going. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. Keep going. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or, <clears throat> or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay. So basically what God is saying is every firstborn male is mine. Okay, now normally what that would mean is as in the Old Testament, you would take your firstborn son to the temple and hand him over. 
and he'd be raised as a priest or he'd be raised in the temple or he'd be raised by, you know, he's to the Lord. This is to the Lord. But we know that the priests were Levites and not every person was in the Levite clan. So God allowed for those who were not of the Levite clan, those who would not spend their life in the temple, for them to be redeemed okay, by paying a price. Okay? And that allowed you. So what you're saying is, God, I give you my son, but uh, instead of me sacrificing my firstborn for the mission of God, I'm going to do this um, sacrifice in a manner of uh, just offering, making an offering to you in his place. Okay, the substitutional offering, again, comes up. All right. Now, it's important to realize that um, only the male had that requirement. Firstborn male is God's. Okay. That's going to bring us into quite an interesting discussion tonight about women. Okay. So now let's go to Leviticus 12. And I want somebody who can read loudly to tell us what is said in Leviticus 12. And I'll tell you when to stop. So just keep going. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Okay. Everybody got the picture? Got it. Okay. So there's a lot, there's about a million questions in this little passage. Okay. So we have, the first thing is, is that anytime a woman had blood flow vaginally, she was considered unclean. Um, and we're going to go into that quite a bit. Um, but as with her menstruation, she had to go seven days. Okay. At the end of seven days, she could um, take a mikvah bath and be considered clean thereafter for the rest of the month. Okay. Now, uh, if she had a child and it was a male, then she treated it like a menstrual period. Seven days after that. Okay. If it was a female, 14 days. Okay. That gets her through the immediate uh, period of uh, purification, right? But then after that, they have a longer purification that lasts either 33 days or 66 days. Okay. Now there's an obvious difference here between having a male and a female. Okay. There's an obvious difference here between the first seven days after you give birth to a child and the next 33, and then the time after that, right? And so we get in this passage, the first thing I want you to know is most people think that when Jesus, and I think if I asked you this, you would have said yes. When Jesus came to be circumcised and he, uh, they gave him his name, they had to offer two turtle doves, right? There's a time difference of 33 days between those moments, okay? She came on eight days to offer Jesus and the circumcision and to do the uh, eight-day sh show, which did include two turtle doves. But then 33 days go by, and now we're back in verse 22. There's 33 days between verse 21 and 22. That's what I want you to see. Okay? 
at day 33 or day 40 total, she's now considered pure and she brings to the priest an offering. Okay. So when we get in verse 22, it says, and when the verse 21 says, um, at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he's conceived in the womb. Okay. Then, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay. So there's 33 days between those. Notice a couple things here. When the time came for their purification, who's they? Her husband is involved in it too. Yes, but the husband's never considered ceremonial and clean when it comes to childbirth. Mom and Baby. Jesus. Okay. Oh. It's important to realize that even though Jesus was sinless and had nothing to atone for, from the moment he was born, he followed Jewish law and took the place of sinners. Okay. Even at the very beginning. So their atonement, their purification has to do with usually the fact that the mom has given birth. The child has come through the birth womb and now is born with the sin nature, right? But in this case, Jesus doesn't have a sin nature. But the time came for their purification. So they both came as obedient Jewish people. What that tells you is that Mary and Joseph were obedient Jewish people. They did exactly what the law said to do. Uh, and the law was mainly set up having to do with sin and atonement for sin. And he followed it to the letter, even though he was sinless. We'll see him do this again. Think of, can you think of a time when he does this again? Baptism. I'm sorry? Baptism. Baptism and the cross. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from the very beginning of his birth, baptism and the cross, throughout that entire process, he is substituting, taking the place of, even though he's sinless, still taking on the place of sinners. Okay. Now, brought to Jerusalem, presented to the Lord, offer a sacrifice. Did you notice that? In Leviticus, it says the woman is unclean and needs to offer a sin offering. What sin has she created? What sin is being offered here? Why did she have to offer a sacrifice as a sin offering just because she gave birth to a child? And if you say the, the problem with sex, then why isn't the husband doing it? I'm sorry? Perhaps, but I suspect if Joseph helped deliver the baby, so did he. Okay. In order to understand what this means, you got to get over our Western idea of clean and unclean. Okay. We think of clean and unclean as sinful, not sinful, right? That if you're clean, you have you haven't sinned, and if you're unclean, you must have a sin. Okay, and that's true some of the time. But the, the Hebrew word for uh, sin is tuma. I mean, for uh, unclean is tuma, T-U-M-A, tuma, okay? It's a weird word, word because there's no word in English that matches that word, okay? When they say tuma, they mean, basically what it means is it's the energy of death that came into the world when man sinned, Okay? In other words, with Adam and Eve on the planet, prior to the sin, there was no tumah. Okay, When they sinned, what entered the world was a sense of death, a sense of an end, uh, a sense of what, an energy of death. Okay, And that was what was considered unclean. Okay, So to many Jewish people, sometimes what that word means is we are experiencing the energy of death that came with Adam and Eve's sin. Therefore, we are unclean. Not so much that we ourselves may have sinned, but the presence of the lost potential of pure life has now entered or been around us. Okay? So let me give an example. Um, tuma is what Adam and Eve brought into the world when they took the fruit of the tree of good and evil. It's the loss of spiritual power and potential from being separated from God. But you can see why we don't really have a good English word for that. Um, because it entails a lot. What it means is, is that not only did sin enter the world, but with it came Tuma, which was basically the 
essence of loss of connection with God, loss of potential, loss of the Holy Spirit, death in the world. It incorporates all that. Okay, There's clean, Adam and Eve before sin, and then there's Tumah. Okay? Now, Tumah is independent of your action. You could be experiencing Tumah because you happen to be in a certain place where that's evidence. Let me give you some examples. Um, since unclean or Tumah was considered to be distance from God, the greatest form of Tumah on the earth is a dead body. Okay? You know, in the Bible, they're always told, don't touch a dead body. You'll be unclean forever if you touch a dead body, right? Um, and um, the reason is, when a human dies, every spiritual potential they had dies with them. And there's a vacuum that occurs. Okay? In other words, the greatest expression of Tumah is a human that had the potential to be eternal and has now died without that potential being fulfilled. Okay? There's no greater separation from God, right? Does that make sense? Um. And so their body becomes Tumah. It becomes the ultimate separation from God. Okay, am I making sense or are you all just like looking at me? Yeah, you get it? Okay. Now, when a woman gives birth or has a menstrual cycle, okay, uh, a woman who's given birth also is experiencing Tumah. Okay. How would a woman giving birth be experiencing Tumah? Okay, let me tell you, because it's not easy. Um, in her was life. In her womb was life. And that life has now been sent out of her womb. Okay? That womb has not only birthed a person, but it's now birthed a sinful person who has also having problems with Tumah. Okay? But there's a sense in that woman that's because she's delivered a baby that life that was in her that had full potential has now been born into a sinful world with a sin nature. Okay. Therefore the child and her in many ways have experienced a separation from God because of sin. Make sense. Okay. Now, um, if you look at this, uh, let me see where I want to go. Um, the other thing is, is that since, she has given birth and brought a person into the world, right? She has added to the world's tumah. In other words, now another human being is here separated from God, born with a sin nature, ready to sin. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so the word unclean here is not that she's necessarily sinful and done something horrible. It's that there's a loss of potential of God-given life. Okay, now if she gives birth to a male, the Tumah can't replicate without the help of a female. Okay, okay, here's the deal. So it, the way they look at it is if you give birth to a female, you have added to the Tumah because that child can now give birth and continue it. Right, okay. A male child cannot do that. Okay. So it doesn't have a lot to do with men and women. It has to do with, are you propagating a life that continues separation from God? And the Jewish people aren't condemning it. They're just recognizing it. Okay. So to them, when they look at, you know, the world and you look at Mosaic law, God says, look, if you had a child and it's a male, do this. If it's a female, do this. And the reason is it's not a sin to have a female, but they recognize that having a female increases the world to ma or separation from God because they can propagate another sinful child. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, now, um, a man is also considered to be in Tuma after sexual intercourse. Okay? The reason? His sperm has left his body. The potential of life has gone out. Okay? So both a woman and a male after sexual intercourse, are considered in Tumah. Okay? They cannot go to the temple. They cannot worship. They cannot do anything uh, up until the evening after they've had intercourse. Okay? So they're considered unclean. Jewish people are not allowed to have intercourse on the holy day. Okay? 
that clearly distinguishes them from the Canaanites who had sexual intercourse as part of their religious experience. Okay, So one of the things that set apart Jewish people from all other religions at that time was the separation of sexual activity um, on holy days. Okay, There were several days when they were not allowed to have sexual activity. One is any Sabbath. Second is Yom Kippur, the high holy day. Third is uh, a uh, celebration, if you want to call it that, in August. That's the, the National Grieving Day uh, of losing the temple, of all those sorts. There's no joy on that day. It's a no joy day. It's called Baharat, I think. Um, so there's certain days that you just, you know, they, they did that. Now, um, uh, now, in the same way, when a woman has a period, okay, the potential for life has left her body again with the egg. Okay. When you understand Tumah, you understand in many ways what they're trying to tell you. Okay, So when she's had a menstrual cycle, there is a full potential of life that didn't get fulfilled. As a result, that potential has left. The potential for another Messiah, the potential for a child, all those sorts of things. Not that it's her fault, but this purification is based on Tumah, not on sin. Okay, So anytime God's full potential and presence has left, you're in a sense of unclean. You're a, you're a reminder of the fallen state. Okay, and so it does happen to men. It happens to women. Okay, now after the time of purification, you had to bathe in a ceremonial bath. Okay, the ceremonial bath had nothing to do with getting clean. In fact, you had to scrub yourself from head to toe before you got in the water. Okay. Um, so they're completely clean when they get in the water. It's very much like baptism, okay? And the idea of the mikvah or the, um, the bath that they would go in was that basically now that you're clean, you're re-entering the womb from head to toe and emerging in life for the next three weeks without tamam, okay? So they had to bathe from head to toe. They couldn't take anything in there with them. Uh, all clothes off, all jewelry off, nothing that would impede the ability of God to fully cleanse you from head to toe. And there had to be somebody there to watch you so that if you touch the side of the mikvah or you didn't completely get underwater, they would declare you unclean. Okay, so that's basically how that worked. Today, there are many Jewish women in very orthodox um, uh, synagogues who uh, have mikvah baths once a month. Um, Basically, that's how they um, do that. And um, one of the things um, I'll just read to you that one of the rabbis wrote years ago, um, talking about the mikvah. Water represents the womb of creation. When a person immerses in the mikvah, he's placing himself in the state of the world yet unborn, subjecting himself to God's creative power. Uh, it removes tuma. Uh, we submerge our after contact with death or loss of life or the potential of tuma. We submerge ourselves in a substance from which life emerged. Okay, now, in order to do that, the mikvah has to have, it's supposed to be rainwater. That's what it means, mikvah. Today, mikvah baths aren't rainwater, but they are two baths. One is rainwater, one is chlorinated pool water. Okay, they are connected through a pipe. Okay, so that they can fulfill the rainwater requirement but still stay healthy through the pool chlorine requirement. Okay? Just so you know that. Um, um, it's, this is really complicated. Okay, so in general, all of us are responsible for our own sin, right? I'm responsible for your sin. My sin, you're responsible for your sin. We all have to atone for our own sin. We all have to accept Christ's atonement for our each individual sins. Okay? But at the same time... Um, we know that because of Christ, this atonement of the law is no longer necessary. Right? We don't follow these laws today as Christians because Jesus fulfilled the laws and um, he was the ultimate atonement. So there's nothing for us to atone for in this process. Um, um, so the way that a Jewish woman would look at menstruation is probably different than the way we look at it. Okay. Um, 
if you read this passage and you don't understand Jewish culture, you come across as women are sinful, terrible, and horrible because they have menstrual cycles every month and God knows they're unclean and therefore they can't do anything for a long time. Okay. The menstrual laws were a way of Jewish culture for the women to remember that they're uniquely special and have the potential of life within them, including the life of the birth of the Messiah. Okay. That their menstrual cycle is actually a celebration. That their time after their menstrual cycle is a time for them to rest, not to be punished. It's a time for them to focus on God, not to be punished. It's a time for them to separate from all the other people and reflect on where they are as a woman, where they are as a Jewish woman, and uh, the potential they have of um, birthing the Tumah. Okay, in other words, it's to them it's more of a celebration. Um, one Jewish woman wrote, um, it's a constant consciousness of the miracles that comprise our daily existence. We do not view the menstrual cycle as disgusting or routine or ordinary. Rather, these laws enable us to recognize the awesome potential of life as it regenerates itself within our very own bodies. Okay, so they have a very different perspective. Um, just think about how incredible it is that every woman was born into the world with hundreds of thousands of eggs laying weight in her body. Then at puberty, her power to transform those eggs into another human being becomes activated. From that point on, every month for the next 30 or 40 years, she'll shed blood as a constant tribute to the continuation of life. Even if none of those eggs become a living human person, her body remains a powerhouse of life. Every month, sacrificing and creating the potential for continued hope. Okay. Now, let's talk about how this is played out. So, And the reason this is important is... He, they went there for purification, okay? And so he's obeying Jewish law, okay? Now, there's a term in Jewish culture called nadah, okay? Nadah is N-I-D-D-A-H. It's the time during which a woman is unclean from her menstrual cycle or from having birth, the first seven days or 14 days, okay? It's called nadah, all right? Many Orthodox Jewish women still um, uh, follow uh, nadah today, all right? During Nadah, a woman is forbidden to have sexual relations um, until she bathes in a mikvah at the end of seven days or 14 days, depending on what the menstrual cycle is done. Okay? Uh, she has to avoid physical contact between her and her spouse. They have to sleep in separate beds. There can be no flirtation. There can be no hugging, no kissing, no encouragement that would be deemed sexual or sensual in any nature. During those days, She's supposed to be focused on God and her potential powerhouse of life. He's supposed to leave her alone. That's kind of how that works. Okay. Now, um, she begins her seven days when she first sees the flow of menstrual blood. Those seven days, at the end of seven days, she is to examine herself um, and make sure that the bleeding has stopped. Okay. In fact, they would naturally uh, wear very white undergarments because they had to be sure the cycle had stopped. If there was bleeding that didn't seem to be related to uterine flow, then that didn't count. Okay? But if the bleeding was felt to be a normal menstrual cycle, then they had seven days they had to watch. And at the end of seven days, if they had no more bleeding, then they would basically... Um, um, go to the mikvah, purify themselves, and for the next three weeks, have no restrictions. Does that make sense? However, um, so let's just go through that. Um, a woman who's having a regular menstrual period is Yolade. Uh, a woman giving birth um, or having a miscarriage is another name, uh, Zava. And Zava is a woman with irregular flow of blood. Okay, So you had three different possibilities. Normal menstrual flow, Childbirth or uh, miscarriage, irregular menses. Okay, now the regular menses were a big problem because what happens is if your period is irregular, it's considered not to be normal blood flow of the month, then you had to wait 14 days to prove that it was fine. Okay, many women with irregular blood flow could not wait 14 days without it starting again. Thus, the woman who'd been hemorrhaging her whole life and was unclean, reached out to touch Jesus, and God is him, if you remember that. 
She likely had not been interacted with anybody and an outcast almost her entire life because her urine flow never stopped long enough for her to be considered pure and to be in a mikvah. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, the rabbis during Jesus's time had a hard time telling between a woman's normal flow and irregular flow. Okay. Now God's law says separate them. Okay. You should be able to separate normal flow from irregular flow from birth, childbirth, right? Well, one of the ways that the um, rabbis became oppressive to Jewish people is they said, well, we can't really tell whether this is normal flow or not normal flow. So we're just going to implement the 14 days on everybody so we don't make a mistake. Okay. And it's another example of the rabbis basically oppressing people with the laws. Okay. Now, what that effectively did is, and the reason that it was offensive, not only to God, but to, well, to God, is if you wait 14 days after your menstrual flow has stopped, there's a good chance you've already uh, ovulated and the chance of getting pregnant that month are much less. Okay, so by implementing a 14-day on top of the, or instead of seven, you're already at day 14 of your cycle. Most people are ovulating at that time. And so many women, it was considered that the rabbis had literally taken life from them. Okay, now, um, um when now, if she is um, having problems with irregular flow, then she has to count off seven days, and then she has to wait another seven and not bleed to give her the fourteen total. Okay, she has to establish that the bleeding has ended, um, and then um, during that entire time, all the restrictions are on her. Okay, um, if at any point during that time she bleeds, it starts over again. Okay, so you can see the hemorrhagic woman had really been an outcast her entire life. Um, and um, in case you're wondering, the mikvah is open every night of the year except Yom Kippur and Tish B'Av. That's the one that's the morning uh, where they mourn the loss of the temple. They mourn the things that have happened to Jewish people. It's a very solemn day. Uh, and um, it's a pool of rainwater. I talked about that. Now, a lot of people read this passage and their, their first question is, well, why men versus women? What, is, you know, what did women do that make it last longer? Why are they being punished? Okay. If you understand Taman, you understand exactly what the potential is. So we read it here. The time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay. That's the firstborn requirement. He's the first person to open the womb, the first male. He belongs to God unless something is sacrificed or paid for in his place where he could still, he's God's firstborn, but he's given back to the parents to raise in a godly manner. Okay. Then it says, um, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. What does that tell us? That they're poor. Okay. So I want you to picture sort of what's happening here. Jesus is born. For seven days, Mary can't go near anybody, can't touch anybody, can't do whatever. Okay? Now, there's a theological concern in the middle of this, which is kind of interesting. That I'll throw out for you. Um, during those seven days, she's not allowed to touch anything holy or to go in the temple. She's touching Jesus. Yeah. A lot of people can't figure that out and don't have an answer for it. Okay. He is holy. He's perfect. So I'll just throw it out there so you can think about it too. But in theory, she's not to touch anything holy. She's not to go to the temple. She's not to have a relationship with her spouse. She's supposed to be theoretically an outcast almost where she's supposed to get alone with God and think about the potential of womanhood, I think is basically how you would describe it. Okay. So that's, uh, that's one thing. Um, she was alone with God. Yep. <laughs> now, the other thing is that it's interesting because this 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 passage on women and their menstrual flow is Leviticus 12. Okay, Leviticus 11 is all about all the filthy, dirty animals, and Leviticus 13 is all about people with leprosy. Okay, so sandwiched between unclean animals and unclean lepers is this passage about women and their menstrual flow. Okay, now I'm probably the only pastor who speaks about women and their menstrual flow, theologically, I would guess. Um, 
But the point is, is that God had very specific laws that had to be followed. Okay. And Jesus came to fulfill the laws, not to abolish them. So Mary and Joseph followed every rule that they were to follow as a Jewish couple raising a Jewish child. Okay. In addition to that, from the moment Jesus was born, he was treated as if he was the firstborn of Joseph. Okay. In other words, they didn't do anything differently with him because he was born of the Holy Spirit. He is different, but he's following the path of Joseph's firstborn child. Okay. Now, um, the um, couple things about... Um, Let me just see if there's anything here I haven't said. Uh, yeah, not really. Um, blood flow throughout the Bible is considered a cleansing process. Okay, we're covered in the blood of Christ. Women's menstrual flow is considered, it, the blood itself is un, uh, unclean, but the process itself of ridding your body of, of uh, uh, life potential lost is a cleansing process. That makes sense. Um, but there's a couple of questions I think that come up. Why is there a sin offering here if there's no sin? Okay, in other words, they clearly are told they have to make a sin offering before the Lord. Um, and you look at them and you go, okay, well, she had a baby. Jesus hasn't done anything. Um, and yet... Um, it seems a person's unclean and suffers something for which he or she is not responsible. What's the sin offering? What's the sin offering to cover? The sin that will happen. The global. It's the global sin of Tama. The unknown sin. The global sin. In other words, we're all responsible for the fact that Tama is in the world. Every time a child is born, we all suffer in the sense that that child is born a sinner in a flesh nature with the potential to be against God. Okay. Because remember in our natural state, no one turns to God. Every child is an enemy of God at birth. Okay. So y'all remember the sermon on Easter where I put up the picture of the really pretty baby and talked about how this child is an enemy of God. Okay. In any event, um, the point is, is that yes, sometimes we have our own sin that we're responsible for and we have to atone for it. We have to confess it. We have to tell Jesus take our place. But there's also the responsibility we have of being part of a global sinful process where Tuma has been basically taken from the world. Just like you may not sin, but you could be damaged by other sinners who are sinning. In other words, you're not protected from global impact of sin. Okay? And as believers or as followers or of godly people, we're not, we're not totally protected from the concept that Sin is here, it's a born nature, it's a flesh nature, and uh, we, they offer these sacrifices not so much because they're unclean, but because we're recognizing that sin is in the world, it's still in the world, and every birth needs to be atoned for. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, now, um, you know, you look at these passages, and the first question people always ask is, you know, why are these people being declared unclean for things that they really have no control over? A person with a skin disorder has no control over getting the skin disorder. Um, a woman having a menstrual cycle is clearly not, I mean, it's, she's not done anything wrong. Um, and, um, um, you know, what wrong is committed? Um, and basically the answer is those things represent in many ways the fallenness of man. There's disease in the world because we live in a fallen world. Okay. There's um, loss of Tuma in various places because we live in a fallen world. Okay. Now, the ultimate being death, particularly death of a non-believer. Um, that, that's the ultimate essence of Tuma. Somebody who dies without the potential of reconnecting to God. Okay. Then you have menstrual flow, the loss of the egg. Uh, sperm flow, the loss of the sperm. Um, and you have um, different things that represent this sort of loss of Tuma. Okay. Yeah. Is that the same uh, idea that the Catholics, I know when I you know, was going to Catholic school, 
of original sin after the Catholic. Yeah, that's it would be similar. What what we would say, I think, is that it's um, we're all responsible for the ultimate sin of Adam and Eve. I mean, that sin is tamah. It's it's what separated us from God. And well, I'd say the sin is not the consequences of that action, or what the Jewish people would call tamah. It's the it's the sense of lost potential, allowing for sin, allowing for death. It's the distance between Adam and Eve prior to the fall and Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. Okay. And if you notice, there's several things that happen after the fall. One is that they're naked and now ashamed. Okay. Tama does that. Okay. You didn't even know you were there was a problem until then. Okay. Sex was pure without any kind of problem. And now all of a sudden you're both naked and ashamed and and you're you're allowing Tuma to interfere with that relationship. Um, if you um, think about it, childbirth itself is part of the curse, right? I mean, yes, is. childbirth is part of the curse. It's also a blessing, but the pain of childbirth is part of the curse, right? Okay, and um, so it's not too surprising that childbirth, in some way, is related to the fall. And some people argue that because childbirth is part of the curse and because women send first, therefore the extra time is to cover for the women. But it doesn't really fit that. It's Tama, I think. I mean, you could say every time people can't explain something, they go, well, you know, Eve sent first. Yeah, well, but you send four billionth and thirtieth and it doesn't matter that you still send, right? So, um, um, so, Man is born a sinner by virtue of being a child of, born in this world, right? And so when you ask the question, why, why should I be unclean for a condition I didn't cause? The answer is because you've inherited a sinful nature from Adam. That's the easiest way to look at it. Um, um, and most things that make you unclean are things related to the fall. Okay. Um, all sickness and death. Okay. There wasn't any disease, there was no leprosy, no skin diseases, nothing before the fall. Okay. Um, unclean animals. There were no unclean animals before the fall. Remember that the fall of man impacted all of creation. Okay. It impacted everything. Um, all creation grows. All creation is under the weight of sin. Our world is a different place because of our sin. Okay. Um, childbearing. Uh, is related to the curse put on, uh, related to sin. Sex became distorted and diminished because of the fall to the point that Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. The view that sex was dirty didn't come from God, it came from man. Um, and it has been, uh, no pun intended, bastardized. Um, um, yeah, so... There's two different types of sin for the Jewish person. Um, one is uh, the sinfulness in which you're born. And if you read some of David's Psalms and David's writings, he confesses that he's born a sinful man. That he's been sinful since birth. There's that sin. And then there's a second sin, which is the result of violating commands of God. Okay. So, and we all have the same too. Um, in Psalm 51, David confesses that his sin is the result of his sinful state that goes all the way back uh, that he inherited from Adam. Um, he says, um, Thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken heart, O God, thou will not despise. When delight in righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings, hover, then young bulls will be offered on the altar. And he goes on, he talks about um, the fact that he is from birth been a sinful man. Isaiah basically says, uh, woe is me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Uh, and it's interesting that later on, Isaiah will speak of man's best efforts as filthy rags. Okay. Isaiah 64, 6. And the term filthy rags that he uses in Hebrew is menstrual cloths. Okay. So what he says is, is that our best efforts, the best thing we have to offer God is basically menstrual uh, fluid. Um, and so um, one thing I do want to talk about a little bit is that um, the law could pronounce a person unclean, right? Um, 
but it has no provision to make them clean. Okay? They can atone for the consequence of it, but they can't cleanse anybody. The priest could declare a person unclean um, and could pronounce a person clean, but couldn't cure the condition for which they're unclean. Okay? In other words, the problem with all these things is there's a problem and we can atone for it, we can lay things on top of it, we can do things to try to cleanse ourselves, but the reality is the problem still exists. Okay? And the priest, the law, there's no there's nothing to fix the problem. Okay. That's why um, Jesus came to meet the unclean. Okay. Pharisees often said, Why are you hanging out with unclean people? Why would you touch a leper? You're now ceremonial unclean. Why would you do these things? Well, the point is he came for the unclean. Okay. Um, when he was crucified, he was crucified as one who's unclean. Okay. When you were crucified or when you were punished, you were punished outside the gates to show that you were not part of the Jewish culture. You were basically unclean. So it is crucifixion. They see him as unclean. And the irony of that, of course, is he's the one that went to those who were outside the gates. He's the one who um, uh, would cleanse people. And he was the only one that had the power to solve the problem that caused it in the first place. He's the only one that could undo Tamar. Okay. So from the time Adam sinned, until the Holy Spirit returns, the Messiah comes, right? The world is basically under the struggle of Tumah. Once somebody has the Holy Spirit, that problem goes away. That make sense? Because now the loss of potential is gone because all the potential has been restored through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. The punishment for sins has been paid for. The sacrifice has been done. That makes sense? So the Tumah doesn't extend into the Christian life. In fact, we celebrate that we no longer have that hold over us, right? Okay. So, um, and Jesus actually solves the problem. Um, he actually takes care of it. Now, in Revelation, we should do a series on Revelation. We should, actually. It's been a while. Another couple of years. Um, there's few things, a number of things which will not be there that we've known on earth. Can you think of things that won't be in heaven that we've known on earth? God. Death, okay. Doctors. Doctors. Marriage. I'm sorry? Marriage. Marriage, okay. Well, except for Christ. Yeah. No sun or moon, right? There won't be a sun. There won't be moon. No ocean. Um, no sickness, sorrow, death. No curse. No tears. Huh? They'll be wiped away? There'll be tears of joy. I mean, if there's tears, there's going to be tears of joy. Um this is the way it's going to be. And then here's what is in Revelation 21. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination line shall ever come into it, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So those who've surrendered to God are forever clean. Temporary covered in sin, but clean. Peter says, why do you wash my feet? You know, well, because the rest of you is clean, Jesus says, right? I'm, a, I'm only washing your feet because you picked up sin along the way. You're clean on the inside. You're clean. That way. I don't have to do that. And then he says, and he says, if I don't do this, have you no, no part with it? The point is, is that we have sins that we have to account for, but we have to recognize that the Tumah, the, the loss of connection with God and our sin is only fractionally represented by unconfessed sin. Okay, when we confess sin, we're brought back into the into the presence of God, right? Okay. Now, um, it's also I think important to say that um, um, Christ's death solves both the problem of sin in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Law and um, the New Covenant. Um, and then um, another thing I want to throw in, I wrote this down. No one's going to go to hell because Adam sinned. Okay. The reality is Adam did sin. And the reality is we are lived in a sinful world, a sinful nature. Okay. But we go to hell based on our own actions. Okay. Um, our own disobedience. And the only reason, though, anyone would go to hell is because Jesus offered to atone for that and they rejected it. Okay. So there's two problems. One I've chosen to send myself, and second, I've rejected the answer, the solution. 
Okay. Um, the self-righteous scribes said Jesus was unclean and they basically crucified him outside the camp. Uh, it's basically, if you look at the scriptures, they took him outside the walls, they put him on a hill, and they crucified him there. Um, it's interesting, though, because the unclean are the ones that came to Jesus. I mean, he was constantly being bombarded with criticism from the Pharisees for not upholding the law, for not obeying the Sabbath, and for touching and healing people who were unclean. Okay? And in many ways, what Jesus said was, you hypocrites, you're only trying to clean the, you're only trying to cleanse the clean. You know, you're, you're going to people that you think are okay and you're hanging with them when you're not going out to the people that actually need to be cleansed. Mm -hmm. It's the famous passage where he says, you know, all the sick need a doctor. Um, you know, he, he basically talks about, um, um, that his job was to touch the unclean. So the woman that's hemorrhaging, she doesn't need more atonement. She doesn't need more awareness of the tama of her life. She needs to be cured. She needs to be healed. Okay, now if you notice that story, she's healed through total faith. She reached out and touched him. Uh, he didn't even know she was doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But she reached out in faith and said, if only I can touch his garment, I'll be healed. Okay, now she knew and that's why when he said, who touched me, she didn't say a word because she just made the holiest man on earth unclean. By her saying it was me, I'm a hemorrhaging woman. I shouldn't be within 10 miles of you. I should be far, far away. But she's unclean. And now he's unclean. And it bothers him zero. Um, so it's important when you think about that story. Um, um there's several times in the Bible where Jesus couldn't, like for instance, when he went to talk to the Samaritan woman, right? First of all, um, the one thing he could not do is drink from the same cup of a fallen woman. He'd have been considered unclean, okay? So even though the whole discussion is about give me a drink of water, he couldn't drink it if he was following the rabbinical laws. Um, and so it's interesting that the wicked, the evil people of the world flee from the presence of God. The sinner that's repentant flees towards the presence of God. And that's really what you see in the Old Testament. Um, there's an interesting thing we're into in Luke chapter 5, so I don't want to blow it too much now. But when Peter saw Jesus, he fell down at his feet. And he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Okay, so when Peter sees Jesus, he hits his deck. Peter felt the feet of the Lord, but at the same time is drawn to him. It's a great paradigm when you think about it. He falls at the feet of God. He says, I'm, I'm in the presence of God. I'm unclean. God, you should flee from me. But at the same time, he's drawn to him. Okay, it's an incredible uh, kind of paradox. Um, um yeah, so that's kind of cool. Um, let's see. The last thing I was just going to say, um, two things. One is, just as they had to make sacrifices for Tama, that's the global sense of sin in the world, and they themselves individually may not have done anything specifically sinful, we live under that burden as well. Okay? We all collectively suffer under the loss of Tamar. Okay? People we love die. Diseases happen. Natural disasters happen. Famines happen. Things happen that we may not have caused ourselves, but we're impacted by because we live in a fallen world. Okay? And so part of following Christ is recognizing that things won't happen to you that are not your, your responsibility. They happen. And they're independent, and not everything that happens to you is sinful. Okay, in other words, in the Bible, they kept asking, you know, is he blind because of his parents or because of whatever? It's not what it was about. There are people born blind because God needs them to be blind. It's this, that simple. Um, and so we live in a fallen world. We will have experiences in our life that we have absolutely nothing to do with other than the fact that we're part of Tamah, right? And they happen because there's sin in the world. Okay. In fact, Christians are probably, and my, this is my view, more susceptible because they're expendable. 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In other words, if the purpose of our life here on earth is to find Jesus and go home when we die, once we found Jesus, we're like pawns in a chess game. If you need to sacrifice me to get somebody else saved, do it. If you need to send me into something to get something to happen, do it. Because I'm already saved. I've accomplished the mission on earth. And as soldiers, my job may be to lay down my life for other people, just like Jesus did. Okay, so we're not promised at all a, a wrinkle-free life. In fact, we're promised probably the opposite, yeah. that things are going to happen to us that advance the message of God because we're expendable. Okay, and when we say, God, take my life and do whatever you want with it, that's what I'm talking about. There are going to be times when that happens to great people, well, sinful people who found Christ. And you're asking yourself, why'd you take them, God? Um it's just, it's going to happen. And it's part of this overall sense of tomorrow. Um, and then I think the last thing I was just going to talk about is um, people who follow Christ and do what Christ did should be going to the unclean. I mean, yeah. they should be going to the unclean. They should be going to the people that everybody else has overlooked. They should be going to the people that suffer the tomorrow, still have the potential, but are, about to become dead bodies, right? The greatest loss of all is the loss of potential of what God could have done. So Christians by nature are called to do what Christ did. Okay? In our world, there are people who live uh, their Christian lives like Pharisees. Okay? I'm not going down there. They stink. They'll throw up. They'll kill me. They hate me. They're, you know, they're whatever. Okay, and they live their Christian lives like Pharisees. And then there's people who are following Jesus who go to the unclean, who go out of their way to reach the people everybody else has overlooked, who go to um, have dinner and to engage with people who the world's given up on, but God is like, that's, the, that's when I sent you here. Okay, so in our lives, part of our challenge is we should be following in many ways what Jesus did and going outside the walls. And whatever walls those are, and what I mean by that is all of us have created our wall of safe zone that defines our friends, our family, the places we go, the people we see, the way we engage, what we're willing to do, what we're not willing to do. And we normally pray within that zone. Okay, God, if you want me to do anything in this zone, I'm all in. But then if he asks us to go outside that zone... Okay, then we start getting challenged. Okay, and here's the issue. I say this a lot. Most people never experience the supernatural, miraculous things of God because they never go beyond their own walls. They stay in the area where they're comfortable, where they feel like they're under control, where whatever God asks them to do, they can do of their own power. Because honestly, we don't want God to be embarrassed. Right? So I'm only going to pray within the area that I can actually accomplish. I'm not going to pray for God to show up and do something amazing. I'm not going to pray for God. If you don't show up, I'm going to look stupid, right? Most of us never see the miraculous of God because we never go beyond the area where we need him. The area where we actually need him. I said that wrong, but you know what I mean? In other words, within our own boundaries of safety, we can do it ourselves. But when you start going to the unclean, when you start going outside the walls, when you start reaching people that Jesus reached, it becomes a bit scary and you stretch yourself. And it's in that stretching that you find yourself and you meet God. Um, so in many ways, I think what I would encourage you to do is, you know, neither Mary nor, jo nor Joseph nor Jesus had done anything that required they be purified, at least from their actions. The law required it because of the greater sin of the world and because of the loss of Tamar, okay? But in general, they still had to follow and obey the law. They still had to do what God told them to do. Jesus came to set them free from that. Okay. In other words, you and I don't fall under Tama. We've been set free. Okay. We have no loss of potential anymore. We're fully going to be like Christ. We're fully going to be everything God created us to be. It may not be on this side of eternity, but it's going to happen. Okay. We live in a world that is still under the curse of Tamar. Okay? So we come out of this world somewhat stained. We can't, we can't isolate ourselves as frozen chosen behind stained glass to keep from getting touched by the sin of the world. 
Okay. We can't isolate ourselves from people who need help, but we have to realize that we're really a lot like Superman. We're bulletproof in a lot of ways. The, we've been reborn. We're, we're from another place. This isn't our home. I mean, all those things, however you want to phrase it. And we've been sent here to go to the least of these and to go out to them and reach them. Okay. Now that doesn't mean we don't go to the most of these as you want to define most. In other words, I hope our church reaches people in Lombok Key and I hope it reaches people in the streets in cardboard boxes. That's my hope. Um, because everybody's just as lost and everybody's just as much in need. But even Jesus said, there's a group that understands they need a physician and there's a group that doesn't. Okay. Most people who are sleeping in boxes are much more open to the gospel message than people sleeping in billion dollar homes out on Longboat. All need to be saved, but there's a group that could come to. Okay, now our job as believers is to reach everybody. Okay, and, and to really see ourselves as why am I here? I'm here to help people who have lost the potential of God because of man's sin. Uh, I talk about it as they're refugees from a war they don't even know is going on. I mean, when I pray, I literally see people coming up towards our church with smoke bombs and explosions behind them and they're carrying all they have and they're coming in here and they're going, is there a place for me? Because I've been out there and it's bad. And they don't even know there's a war. They don't know what's happened to their lives. They just know it's been destroyed. They just know that something really bad has happened to me. Um, and I suddenly woke up and realized I'm in a battle and I've lost. And they're coming to us saying, can you help me? Um, so I really want you to think about that. Um, and to think about just the, I wish we had a word for Tama because it's the overwhelming sense of loss of what happened when we sin. It's the, it's the, the delta between full potential and human potential, right? It's the difference based on our sin that we've lost. It's also the magnitude of the addition of what we get with the Holy Spirit, right? If you can understand how much we lost through sin, then you also understand, therefore, how much we gain through surrender and atonement in Christ, right? So this brings sorrow. This brings worship. That makes sense. Any thoughts about all this? He talked for a whole hour about menstrual flow. Well, what's interesting is in the modern age, we think of menopause. Yes, finally, they must think of the hormones that are the, the thing I didn't want to get into, because it could take a very long time to talk about, is... We're going to leave anyway. I'm just going to tell you is the way a Jewish woman felt when month after month after month she could not birth a child. Yeah, I mean, because in our culture, you know, a lot of women may not want to birth a child. In their culture, that's all they wanted to do. I mean, it was everything. For a woman to have a child was everything. And to have a male child, even better. But, you know, and you read in the Old Testament where God closed their womb and open their womb. Okay, so they very much saw part of that tama, that loss of potential, could be a curse on them for the things they've done or God's random choice to do it. So they saw it very differently than we did. At menopause, they would be very, very sad if they didn't have a child. Um, at the same time, though, it was unusual for a woman to have a child after the age of about 32 or 33. Uh, women having children after 40 is a new thing for us. Um, um, so in any event, um, yeah. So when you understand, because everybody goes, you know, why did you just spend an hour on this? Well, the reason is if you understand this, then you get to passages like we read earlier where Elizabeth suddenly is going to have a child and you begin to understand what that really meant to her. I mean, it really meant enormous to her that now her whole life, she never had a child. She was the wife of a priest. She never had a child and now she's having a child. Um, it, it really does put into perspective when you understand their culture, a much better understanding of the stigma that comes with being um, a faithful wife who's done everything with God, but somehow hasn't had a child. They would read that as you're doing something you shouldn't have done. You have an unconfessed sin. You have something wrong with you. Uh, their culture was just as screwed up as ours is. And it's just in a different way. So, any other thoughts? Yes, sir. This may seem trivial, but I can't get past it. Go for it. Um, 
New Living and ESV use the plural, their purification. Uh -huh. Every other translation uses the singular curse. Yeah, it's plural. So where does that distinction It really looks plural to me. Um, I looked at that word in particular. Um, it looks very plural to me there. Now, the point is, is that there really is only one person there who necessarily needs to be purified, and that's her. Well, I like the underlying implication of, you know, using the plural, but, yeah, yeah. I just, I but in, in mine, it, it uses her, but in the concordance part of it, it says they. Yes, um, and so it speaks to both. There, uh, let me I'm kind of hung up on that, too, because... I mean, is it, are, are we to assume that she had no help from Joseph in childbirth? Because no, she had total help from Joseph, I would think, at least some level. Well, then why wouldn't he be unclean? Because yeah, question, in Leviticus 15, you get into right. what happens. Yeah. I mean, it very well could be, or it could be he had nothing to do with the birth, and he just stood by and watched. I, I just can't, I can't bring... Because there were maybe But even if you go back to birth in 1950, the man was like an enemy of the birth process. But he was the only one. He wasn't the only one. I mean, I, I taught last week, two weeks ago, yeah. that there were probably five, five nursemaids delivering that child in oh, that house. Okay, I missed okay. that. So, yeah, go back and listen. It's very fascinating. I talked about how he wasn't born in a cave and he wasn't born in a bunch of horse stables. Um, he was born in a home in a living room, basically, with other women who were helping. So, uh, yeah, so that's basically um, that part. Let me just hit this real quick and see if I can come up with that word. Okay, so air purification, 92.11. I checked King James first, but it's going to be more verbatim. New King James and IV, August 16, 1950. Yeah. Just pull it up. I'll look at it more, but I, I looked at this quite a bit, and um, it's I think it's plural. Um, Either way, I mean, I think my point is she clearly had to do it. Um, they could mean Joseph, perhaps. Um, um, but Joseph, most men had nothing to atone for at the birth of a child. You didn't see them going to the temple after the purification time to do that. And there's no commandment related to the man's role in childbirth or birthing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting thoughts that spur yes. further thoughts. Yes. Yes. That's what I love about the Bible. Um, so we got through one passage. They're going to present the, yeah. this child to uh, a couple people that are even more interesting, or as interesting, we'll talk about next time. So, all right, any other final thoughts? Stop the recording.